Hi everyone, welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Broncos. In this episode, I speak with Ketty Lee, co-founder of Arutify, a student loan fintech that allows students to pay their tuition in installments to their schools. Ketty talks about moving back and forth between Southeast Asia and the U.S., her work in economic development and social impact, and her conviction that an educated workforce is critical for an economy to succeed. Arutify is a student loan provider in Indonesia and the Philippines. They work directly with universities and other educational institutions to allow their students affordable access to student loans. Arutify raised a 5 million Series A led by Monks Hill and Qualgro in February of 2021 and was approved by Indonesian financial regulator Ojeka for a P2P lending license in August. You can learn more about them by visiting arutify.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. Kenny, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi, I'm Rita. It's, uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Super excited to have you. Um, Kenny, I want to jump right in and start with your career before Rudify because you have done so many awesome things. Um, let's start actually like going like way back. Let's start with college. You, you grew up in Jakarta and decided to pursue your university studies in the U.S. You attended uh, the University of Chicago, but you actually decided to come back to Southeast Asia after school. So two questions. First, why did you decide to go to the U.S. in the first place? And second, um, why did you decide to move back to Southeast Asia after school? Sure thing. Um, college seems like ages ago, but I'm not going to disclose my age, although you can probably figure that out pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, I was in Chicago, you know, uh, <laughs> more than a decade ago now. Crazy, huh? But um, I think, uh, you know, obviously it's a privilege to be able to study abroad, right? Uh, and uh, none of my parents, so basically first generation college grad, my sister's brother and I, uh, and uh, my parents never graduated from high school or even thought about studying abroad, right? They've never actually lived abroad. For us, I think because of the schooling that we had, so essentially I grew up in, uh, went to a, even though it's not officially because of regulation reasons, uh, my school wasn't officially an international school, but we basically had adopted international curriculum. So all my schooling has been very much Western-based, um, not necessarily American-specific, but I think all of that basically had instilled this, this idea, right? And also really 
my parents has always opened that door, right, of opportunities that you can study abroad. And if you can, please reach sort of the highest education that you can, you know, and we're ready to support you, which um, even though sort of typical Asian family don't really say it out loud, I think it was sort of implied, right? They, they never kind of put a cap on any of us. Um, so I'm the third or fourth kid. So I think my sisters kind of paved the way first. They studied abroad, um, you know, went to school in the States as well. And I think because of different, you know, influences, that was the place to go. And for me, the liberal arts sort of um, system makes sense to me. I actually looked at Europe for a little bit, but 16, 18 year old me was like, oh, I don't know what to do with life. You know, you can't ask me to just concentrate in one major now, whereas I really like the liberal arts school uh, system where you can kind of explore. Um, so yeah, I really at that point, I was looking at my criteria, I believe was sort of big cities because I've always grew up in Jakarta. So needed to be the hustle and bustle uh, and econs. I really wanted to do economics um, kind of got into it in high school, really um, loved the idea of economic development. So that kind of narrowed it down to whoever wants to accept me um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and those criteria. So I got to Chicago, which has been a terrific place, learned a lot, made great friends. Well, so then why, why after school did you decide to move back to Southeast Asia when a lot mm -hmm. of other folks who end up studying in the US kind of plant roots there, you decided to come back? Yes, 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 yes. So uh, yeah, definitely. When I left, uh, I was sort of like, bye Indonesia, bye Southeast Asia, you know, I'm never coming back, right? That, that's sort of the mentality. I was like ready to, ready to leave and pave my way. Uh, four years is sort of a short and long time. I think in those four years got to uh, really understand, you know, what, 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 what sort of living abroad by myself, finding myself, right? Um, and being independent and trying to figure out what do I really want to do? Did I thought about staying in the States? I think the, the, I think the thought must have crossed my mind. Um, if anything, my internships during my college days were mostly in the States. Um, but I think, you know, talking to different people, kind of really looking into what I wanted to do. So at that point, I really wanted to pursue a career in economic development, community development, um, wanted to kind of explore the NGO world, right? Being really at the front line of social impact. Um, and I think it made sense to be in a, in a region where the need is great. Um, even though I wasn't necessarily ready to be back in Indonesia because of different reasons. Um, I think there was a pull there and, you know, as, as someone who's religious as well, right? I also prayed and meditated and just felt like there was that peace with it. So there's sort of like the rationale, you know, you do your pros and cons and kind of list it out. Um, but, you know, I also kind of my gut feeling and sort of, you know, that, you know, after moments of prayers and then talking to different people, um, yeah, felt like, you know what, let's just go and, and, and see what, what's out there in Southeast Asia. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I don't know if that was the right decision or not, but I think um, no regrets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Katie, when you moved back to Southeast Asia, you actually did some really cool things. And I'm just going to name a few of them. Um, you've worked in microfinance, uh, political risk consulting, helping countries set up democracy and good governance structures, and even at a private equity firm focused on financial inclusion and social impact in emerging markets. Like, wow, that's incredible. And I think I feel Katie, like you really should uh, 
you really should be writing my resume. <laughs> you do a much better job describing. So many cool things. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think you could look at that and say, I mean, they, all of those functions are quite different, but you can really see that what pulls them together is this, this desire to have a societal impact. And I want to dig into that a little bit. Can you tell us more about this? Like, why did you decide to pursue work in these sectors? Like what really drives you in this space, maybe beyond just the fact that you studied, uh, you know, economics and, and development when you were in school? Sure. I think, like you said, um, looking back, my twenties was definitely an exploratory stage. Uh, so again, I think I'm really lucky that I got the opportunity to also try various things. I was in Singapore for a bit, uh, working for an NGO, um, you know, working in a public affairs consulting, uh, and then got to Indonesia as well, right? Be more on the ground um, and did more field work, doing monitoring and evaluation, and also, um, you know, impact investing at some point. I think for me, it was trying to figure out what is my role right, in terms of creating social impact. Um, also, what kind of impact really resonated with me? I think, you know, for, for me, what drew me to economic development in the first place is sort of like the typical phrase, right? Don't give a person a fish, teach them how to fish. Uh, so really hung on to that. And I think even some people, um, you know, expand that further, you know, don't just teach them how to fish, right? Equip them with sort of the pool and the equipment and how to how to fish, right? Show them where sort of you can fish and all of that. And I think that's what resonated with me. I think, you know, whether it's microfinance, right? Or impact investing or, um, yeah, those things are sort of how do you not, how do you equip, right? Your beneficiaries, right? The people who are, uh, who you're serving, the people who are in need, so that eventually they can figure it out on their own, you know, so that they're not just dependent on an institution or on, on a group of people. Um, many ways to do that, so, uh, but I think that was, that was the main thread for me. Yeah, thanks, Kitty. And uh, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and it's interesting because then you went back to school, actually, you went back to grad school in the U.S., uh, or you did your double MBA and master's in public policy at Harvard, which is, of course, where we met. You, you were, again, really keen to come back to Southeast Asia after school and were really focused on education and upskilling Indonesians, the, the Indonesian workforce. Can you tell us about that, uh, that line of thinking and how did that ultimately lead to your decision to join Arutify? Sure. So for me, basically, um, after working for about six or seven years, right, having seen through various sectors, various ways of kind of creating that impact, um, it was also a time of realization of, okay, what is, what is my thing then? You know, what is the role that is unique to me, right? To Ketty, to the, the background, the context, the life experiences that I've had. Um, grad school is sort of as many people say, sort of an escape route <laughs> where I'm like, all right, world, let me just gather my thoughts and, and sort of um, meditate uh, for a while on that. So definitely very lucky and it was a fun time, right? And it was great to meet people like you, right, Amrita, kind of like fellow um, like-minded people trying to figure things out. So for me at that time, essentially, it's, you know, knowing really even the realization, right, that all the sectors that I've been through and all these sort of different uh, career paths that I've tried to pursue, what was the, what was the uh, main sort of connecting thread, right, what was the pattern, and that's grad school was sort of a time for me to take stock of my life, 
and really figure out actually, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to equip people, right? I, and in essence, when during my during my professional life up to that point, what I've seen is that sure, there's a lack of resources, right? Whether it's financial or non-financial, um, and there's broken systems and all of that. But fundamentally, the thing that will really make an impact, a lasting impact, is the people. And I think what I've seen is that. Um, there's a lot of, you know, people being imported from elsewhere, but it's so much better as well, not to say that there's no need, right, but it's, it's so much better when the local talent can also thrive, when the local talent can really step up and do those jobs and, and, and lead. Um, and that I haven't seen as much in my own country and in Indonesia, right, and it's kind of ironic because I say this again and again, right? We're fourth sort of largest population in the world, right? And yet when we're when we're talking, even when I was in the States, not a lot of people know about Indonesia or we're certainly not known for the talent. And I'm like, that is just ridiculous, right? Our biggest asset, if you just look at it rationally, right? Uh, no patriotism aside, just look at the data. Our biggest asset is our people, right? So where are all these people? So that for me is just, both frustrating and also sort of this is, you know, it just, it just hits a button, you know, and, and I think uh, grad school was a time to figure out, okay, um, if this is a problem that I want, what are the root causes and really what is my role? Uh, so I graduated in 2019, um, again, came back to Indonesia. I think this time around the decision was a lot easier. I think I went, you know, kind of knowing that I wanted to really tackled this, this problem in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. Um, and there wasn't really anything that was drawing me as much when I was in the States, even when I was exploring. So by 2019, I also wanted to figure out whether, you know, I'm cut for entrepreneurship, never done this before, have always been an established organization. Um, yeah, spent, you know, months trying to figure out what do I really want to create? Who do I want to do it with? Because those are the two things that really uh, are important for me, right? The what, the who. Um, and yeah, Arutify is, it's funny because essentially my sister, Susli Lee and, and, and Naga uh, um, is the original co-founder. They basically founded this in 2018 in Indonesia. Um, the name was Danachita then. So we started Indonesia as Danachita. We're still known as Danachita, which means Aspiration Fund in Indonesia. Uh, then we started to branch out to Philippines in 2019, before my time, uh, and we're called Bukas, which means tomorrow in the local language. Uh, Arudify is sort of our, you know, encompassing name. But uh, so, yeah, like Arudify has always, you know, been in my mind, right? I knew of it uh, peripherally because they started it when I was in grad school, um, but I think because of the familial relationship, I kind of, that wasn't top of mind. But then being on the ground in Indonesia, seeing the team, you know, um, and seeing the work done and getting to know the vision and mission better, just convinced me that, hey, you know, it ticks the box of the team. Like it's fabulous sort of, you know, um, co-founding team, right? That I can join and they're doing great things. The heart, the mind, you know, the vision is all there. Um, the local team that I talked to are, uh, is great. And uh, yeah, it, it tackles that skill sets, right? Uh, basically, we provide access through financing, right? So if the students right now, the enrollment rate is only 30%, basically 70% of Indonesians are not going to 
uh, are not continuing their education. They're not going to university, which means their career path is automatically capped. Um, so we wanted to tackle that uh, first, right? And ensuring that students can basically go to an existing schools first um, and being able to be equipped there. And hopefully in the future, right? Uh, sooner than later, we can also uh, be able to play a bigger, bigger role as well. But yeah, uh, that's that's sort of life journey so far. Yeah, no, that's that's an incredible story, Kitty. And you can when you when you say it that way, you can really see how all of you have a lot of building blocks, and they all kind of build on one another, and they've brought you to Arutify, which is really really incredible. Let's actually talk more about Arutify now. So first, how does it work? Um, what's different about the way that you interact with students and educational institutions than traditional student loan companies? Sure. Uh, so basically, Rudify, like I mentioned, provides student loans, right? The way we do it, though, is we really are more of a installment programs because of the infrastructure that we have, unlike in the states where you can basically, there's a more mature financial ins uh, institutions and, and system. Um, you would, you know, you can sort of go to school and pay off your loan after you graduate. For us, it's basically providing an installment uh, option so that you can pay on a monthly basis on a longer term, though. So we fund it per semester or however long your program period is, and we, we pr um, provide a longer uh, payment period. So let's say a semester is six months long with Arutify, you can basically pay 12 to or even 24 months long. Um, and we work closely with schools. So we have a B2B2C model, right? For us, um, basically we want to be the back end engine of the education institutions. So we work with uh, we focus on higher education and above. So essentially to ensure people are uh, enrolled in colleges because we know that you know a bachelor's degree, edu uh, university education is almost a baseline for a good career these days, right? And even more, the standards have been kind of pushed to having a postgraduate degree and there's also a lot of upskilling. So we basically focus on that sector and we want to encourage students, local students going to local universities, right? So that the idea is, hey, you know, um, and, and we're actually exploring as well uh, as we continue to grow funding students who want to study abroad as well. But the idea is your education doesn't stop in high school, right? You can do so much more, you can equip and, and learn so much more and build those networks. So let us help you. So we become the bridge between the students and their needs because they don't have to limit their options because of their economy. They can go to, they can go to medical programs, for instance, a lot of people kind of shy away because it's so expensive, it could be 10 times the cost of regular um, programs. Uh, but yeah, pursue your dream. And, but we also bridge the need of the schools, right? They don't have to provide a lot of dispensations, right? A lot of sort of different payment schemes, they can basically uh, have the assurance that the payment for the uh, student is uh, done and completed. Uh, the student can basically enroll, right? And all the end-to-end -end from application, verification, and later collection are all taken care of by us. And we also do marketing, right? So we basically want to be that back-end engine. We work closely with the partner schools so that they can offer this, you know, additional option for, for the students and draw more students in and ensure that students are finishing school and not dropping off midway. 
Got it. That's incredible. So instead of working directly with the students, you're working with the institutions who are then sort of your, your, your intermediary, but it's also an incredible way for you to scale. If you work with an institution, you have a ton of students right there at your disposal who have like a clear, a clear need uh, for the product. Um, but I'm, I'm interested also in like the risk model, right? How do you assess the risk of the student or are you assess, assessing the risk of the institution? And is that risk born on your balance sheet or on somebody else's balance sheet? Yeah, so for us, basically, uh, exactly. So the B2B2C model helps us basically have two filters, right? We both, obviously the students have to go through a verification process and application process. We look at it holistically. We also contact our, our uh, students, right? And their guardians. So one, we want to ensure, uh, we want to ensure that we're doing this responsibly. So that's very important for us, right? There's a lot of sort of various, you know, lending institutions out there, right? That's that's not really helping the, the, the sector, but uh, we believe strongly, right? That our product, um, our installment products, our financing products can really help students. So we want to make sure that whoever applied to us, you guys know what you're signing up for. And we're here to kind of help you explain, help you really, um, we're basically your partner, right? As well, um, in figuring out your economics for your education. And on the other side, we also work with the partner schools. So we, it's very important, and uh, this is sort of uh, my focus area as well in terms of business development, figuring out which schools, right, which strategic partners uh, are really key for us because we want to drive students to go to good quality schools, right? So we've been really blessed and really grateful to be able to partner with top private universities, right? Um, uh, and be able to also work with uh, non-formal institutions, you know, so in Indonesia, we partner with UNTAR, which is one of the top 10 uh, private universities. We also uh, work with non-formal, non-degree conferring uh, boot camps like uh, Hacktivate, as well as um, language schools like Wall Street English. So these are schools that, you know, work with us very closely. Uh, and that really helps us as well to filter and ensure one, that the students are really committed to studying, uh, and two, that you know th this is a a credible education institution. And lastly, I think for us, uh, the risk factor, we also disperse directly to the campus. So we ensure we want to ensure that the financing and the funding we provide are to fulfill your tuition, your education needs. So who who bears the risk? Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. So the risk, I think there's also, we actually also have a, um, so we're, uh, you know, we're, we're a P2P platform, right? So basically we also have lenders and basically match it. Um, and uh, we also, part of the risk mitigation is to, we also work with partners actually that can provide subsidized uh, interest rates or uh, what we call tuition discount. So that has been really helpful. Right, because as we play the bridge, what we want to offer more and more is a product that helps, that creates a win-win-win solution, right? That it's a product that helps the partner schools in terms of their finances, their operations, their marketing. Um, and for the students, the more that the partner is involved and wants to be able to help and bear the cost. So we have partners that are great, you know, they really believe in the product, they really want their more students kind of uh, benefiting from it, and they're willing to basically subsidize the fees such that the students can pay on a 0% installment. 
which is perfect, right? For the students, they essentially get the benefit of, hey, I can enroll, I'm insured, you know, that I can finish off this program and I pay on a monthly basis, which means instead of, let's say, you know, 20 million rupiah, you know, like $2,000 up front, I can pay, you know, less than a thousand dollars, right? A tenth of it, um, if I parse it out, you know, over 12 or 24 months. So that for us is, is sort of an ideal scenario. And we've been, we've been very grateful that we, we're seeing more and more partners, you know, yeah. wanting to basically help that. That's great. So, and in partners, you mean like the educational institutions? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. let me also just make sure I understand the P2P model here, because this is a little bit unique in Indonesia, where you have got lenders on the P2P platform, which is Arutify, and then those funds get uh, get funneled to universities who then will disperse them to individual students uh, on, on your behalf. So we're basically the matching, right? So the lenders entrust us, uh, fund us. And then we basically help, uh, you know, figure out which campuses and um, eventually, basically, the application is still on the individual, right? So the borrowers are still the individual students, mm-hmm. but because this is specifically unlike sort of uh, consumer loans, right, where it's given to the individuals and you don't have any control on what they use it for, mm-hmm. we disperse it directly to our partner schools such that it's clear, hey, you know, student A, you're enrolled, this is your semester fee, we're funding it great. We're, we've paid it off. Now you're clear for that semester. Great. Great. That makes a lot of sense. And then mm-hmm. I have to ask about the repayment side, right? Because that's how this, this model, uh, how this model really works, right? Are you getting repaid from those individuals after they graduate? Are you getting repaid from the institution? Is there any sort of income share agreement, which is something I know that has grown in popularity in the West? Um, how, how does your repayment model work? Yeah, so uh, simply put, we're basically a monthly installment program, right? So they would pay after we disperse, they would basically pay uh, immediately during their, their study program. Again, you know, um, this is because of the system that we have, right? The infrastructure that we have, we're not at a point where you can sort of have a four, four year delay like the, like the US. Um, and for us, it's also the sooner you can pay off, right? I think for everyone, it's also, um, uh, alleviate sort of the economic concerns. Uh, that's why the verification process in the beginning is really important to us. That's why we have close communication uh, mm-hmm. from the beginning, right, with their families, with the students, so they know sort of what is the scheme, what is your sort of payment responsibility. Um, yeah, and so in terms of uh, in terms of the schools, you know, with the partner schools, it's also all disbursements are done according to their payment deadlines. So essentially, for the partner schools, is really there's not a lot of disruption, right? Because what we want is that hey, we come in to help you, so you don't necessarily have to change a lot of your mm-hmm. of your payment deadlines, payment systems. We come and with technology, right, are able to adapt it more as well and, and be, be quicker in assessing and quicker in approving and dispersing to the campus. Cause what we've seen, especially with COVID, um, mm-hmm. you know, we've been, in, in some ways it's been a blessing in disguise, right? Obviously it's been hell of a ride for everyone, but uh, um, we're seeing that need, you know, more and more students unfortunately are feeling the impact and education is a basic need, right? We want it to continue to be a basic need. Um, but schools are also struggling because it's been one and plus years, right? Like they have operational uh, costs that's still running, even if no one's at the in the building, 
you still need to pay something, right? To keep that going. So this is where we play a part. And so for schools, hey, you still get your funding upfront, uh, you know, for, for students you basically pay us and everything's electronic. So it's all, it's all really easy. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. I was, I was also going to ask you about the COVID impact uh, because obviously, yes, there, it's been a total transition uh, of the way that we work and live and study. And for, for Arutify, uh, I think, you know, you're definitely filling a gap for the students, for the schools, but what about your own business? How has it either disrupted or provided new opportunities for Arutify? Yeah, for us, again, I just have to give a shout out to all my team here, you know, Indonesia, Philippines, both of them have been heavily impacted. We've been on many lockdowns, I don't know, for however many times now, but everyone's been so resilient. Uh, we actually grew tremendously. So when I uh, started in um, 2019, early 2020, we were probably about 30 people big across the region, just everyone. And now we're close to hundred, which, you know, we're growing super fast. Um, most of us were onboarded virtually, but it's been really great just seeing people being committed, uh, people really being, you know, working hard. Uh, so hopefully we really want to be able to meet in person soon. Um, literally some people I only have seen them neck and above. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how tall they are. I don't know, you know, um, but um everyone's been just uh super committed so really really thank them for that right uh so also a blessing for us because we i know that you know you don't take that for granted right that's really i think with the COVID, what we want uh and what's been a challenge is really keeping everyone's morale and making sure no one's burnt out and you know mental health uh, is really important as well the business has grown as well i think we're seeing uh if anything one uh with with COVID uh, in the education sector, right? It's really shown a need for technology. Mm -hmm. It's really shown a need that, hey, this whole online learning or technology in whatever shape and format is here to stay. It's up to you to figure out how it's gonna work, right? So I don't think all sorts of campus have to do it the same way, right? It depends on which region and depends on what your students are like, depends on what program you're offering, but I don't think you can ignore technology. Whereas before, I think, you know, perhaps more uh, established traditional institutions are sort of like, well, status quo is fine. Mm -hmm. But now I think it's helped us to, hey, you know, you gotta really think innovatively and then outside the box. And that's what's been exciting for us to be able to play a part. Um, and I think what's exciting as well is that we've also allowed access to people outside of the capital city, right? A lot of students usually are, it's very, very Indonesia at least, and in the Philippines heavily concentrated on Jakarta and Manila. But now we're seeing more people are studying in their hometowns, you know, more people, students who are outside of those cities now can still study, right? And and it's um, payment for us, right? This is where we come in. It's also accessible for you. You don't have to, you know, be on campus to pay off your semester fee, you know, you can figure it out, we'll let you, you know, the information is also more easily disseminated. So yeah, I, I think for us, definitely, definitely very grateful that COVID has been a, in some ways, a booster, mm -hmm. um, you know, although obviously it's, it's also we're managing the risk, we're seeing how it's uh, impacting on the economy, I think it's a long term game and making sure that our team, you know, 
are all healthy and well. Absolutely. And, and I think Erudify is incredible and it's an incredible opportunity because you can work in an offline model, if you will, like where people are going to campuses. So if and when we return to that state of the world, Erudify can, you know, slot right in. Um, but in the current state of the world where, yeah, everything is online, Erudify actually enables people who would otherwise not have access to those uh, learning opportunities to have them, which is which is so great. Um, you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, your team in Indonesia and your team in the Philippines. I, I'm really interested to learn. I mean, obviously you started in, in Indonesia, but then why did you guys decide to move to the Philippines as your next market? And what are some of the major um, similarities and differences that you see uh, in, in, the, in those markets? Yeah, so, so it's, it's fascinating. I think, you know, a lot of people actually did dissuade the, the team then to not expand because we're still quite early. But I think we saw the opportunity, we saw some similarities and with startups, right? Uh, you usually attract kind of crazy people. <laughs> They're sort of like, well, okay, it might not make sense, but you know what, just go for it. So kudos to the team for starting it, you know, love the Philippines team. Um, so we've started since 2019 and have grown uh, rapidly as well. Um, and I think the similarities are, both markets basically have low tertiary enrollment, only about 30%, right? So it's not, yeah, the numbers are, I often say it, but when you really think about it, it's literally, you know, less than half, right? These are millions, millions of students, uh, of, of college age students not going to college. And really when we talk to them, because we do, you know, we reach out to run FGDs, run interviews, they're basically going to work. But we know the kind of work that they do are not really long-term careers, ideally, right? They, they might be sort of, um, you know, uh, grab drivers, Gojek drivers. Yeah, you get some income now, you know, and it's great, you know, but but uh, sort of what's the next step, you know, and, and we would love to be able to open that opportunity, right? If you need to take a gap year, great, but um, sort of pushing them, encouraging them to not lose that dream of furthering their education. Mm -hmm. um, so similar market in that sense. And I think, you know, the higher education sector is also more, um, it's, uh, it's not centralized. So there's a lot of public and private universities. So that, you know, gives us sort of the opportunities to work with the various uh, institutions as well. It's not just, I think certain countries, right, have like just a handful of public universities or for instance, in Europe, it's heavily subsidized. There's no real need for financing. In, in, in Southeast Asia, I think it's a very sort of um, individual driven, right? You gotta really, uh, there's not a lot of options as well. So for the students, you basically have scholarship, which is limited. Um, there's some, there's not a lot of, let's say government funded um, aid other than scholarship. So you're really kind of left on your own because the banking sector also isn't really serving the education, the student segment, right? It's a very different risk profile. Um, the product is just not that easily available. So we saw that similarities. Uh, the differences though, after kind of entering the two markets has been really interesting. I think with Indonesia, uh, the headline for Indonesia, I feel like it's always, it's a huge market, but it's so diverse, right? So. Um, you have thousands of universities, but each segment, depending on which which city or you know what type of institution, it's 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 ran very differently. In mm -hmm. Philippines, I think it's more uniform. Uh, you know, things are more um, 
there might be less universities compared to Indonesia. Um, so there's, uh, you know, certain universities just attract a bigger uh, population and it tends to be run more professionally because there's a lot of private sector involvement in there. So I think that's probably been the two, uh, the, the biggest difference between the two markets. Got it, got it. And it sounds like both markets are going pretty well. Do you have plans to expand into any other uh, Southeast Asian markets? Uh, the plan is always there. I think it's a matter of when. Uh, again, our heart is really in Southeast Asia, right? Um, the co-founding team, all of us really comes from this region. Yeah, everyone comes from this region, essentially. Um, so we'll see, you know, there's always, you know, there's always talks of various places, uh, but probably not in 2021. We have our hands full <laughs> yeah, with the yeah, two markets, sure. but yeah, very keen to see at uh, other other markets as well. Yeah. Uh, and Katie, I was kind of thinking about your, your founding team, you, Naga, and Rich. And, um, you know, you'd said earlier that, you know, you see this need for uh, Southeast Asians, you know, it's a huge population for them to like, you know, get educated and the founding team, you guys are all so, but I do have to ask, you know, there you are three of you, three MBAs running the show. How do you, how do you not get buried in the depths of PowerPoint? You know, us MBAs, we love PowerPoint. How do you make sure you're really focused on implementation and product and not just, you know, running in circles around, you know, strategy? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that's, that's a great question. I think for us, yeah, it's funny. Um, I don't think we've met, we meant it that way. I think it's just, you know, um, it just happened that we all kind of like and and like uh, each other. That's very important. <laughs> and also really believe in the mission, right? So I would say that even though we're all in on paper MBA grads, we're also, this is my, probably my biased view. We're also sort of like the non-traditional MBA background. So obviously, you know, you've, you've mentioned about my background, right? I, if anything, I never thought about pursuing an MBA until pretty much the year that I applied for an MBA, kind of have always been hunkering down more on the nonprofit um, policy uh, matters, but, uh, you know, saw a huge role that the private sector can play, a huge role that businesses can play. Uh, so that's, that's the lens that I would bring in. So I'm not a PowerPoint genius by any means. My PowerPoints are very, <laughs> not going to be up to par to what uh, an mba -er, I feel like, would be uh, um, churning out. And then for, for Rich, I think his heart has always been in education as well. So even in Stanford, you know, he was heading up the education club and he's also actually a part-time lecturer in uh, Ateneo, his alumni in the Philippines. He still teaches on the side over the weekends, you know, very much his heart is in teaching, is in education. Um, uh, and, and Naga, right, is, is uh, you know, has a heart in, in banking and in trading, but you know, I think he brings that lens, um, but very much uh, entrepreneurial, right? Like, um, so I think we're all, yes, on paper MBA, but I think we also bring our different life experiences into it. Um, and yeah, in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of all the other parts, it's, it's where the rest of the team comes in, right? So for us, we, we, we run a flat, you know, sort of team because we give a lot of autonomy and, and we realize, right, um, the three of us can't crack this together. Like it's not, it's up to a bigger team. I mean, we're, when we're talking about education sector, financing, uh, 
financing a loan is a new product. That's what we've also realized, right? When you talk about student loans in the States, no one blinks an eye, it's sort of a given. When you talk about that in, in, in Indonesia, a lot of the people that, a lot of the students, a lot of the people that I've been interviewing, right, for different positions are like, we didn't know student loans exist, you know? I've been watching this American show and they talk about student loan all the time and we didn't know it, it exists in Indonesia. Like literally that's what someone said, you know? And I was like, yes, <laughs> this, is, this is why we're here. But that's why we're, there's still so much work to be done because the market is just so, so, so nascent yeah. um, in Indonesia, Philippines, Southeast Asia. So for us, we really lean on, on, on the team and it's, Again, uh, very, very grateful and thankful for just all the crazy people that that jump on this bandwagon and trust us, you know, to to uh, to yeah, go and grow this. I think y'all are just inspirational leaders. That's how you've attracted those people. Okay, so Kenny, we've talked about the business side, but I also have to ask you, since you're a student of public policy, um, I have to ask yeah. about Arutify's relationship with uh, regulators. Um, I actually have to congratulate you and the Arutify team on a couple of recent regulatory milestones. One is you brought on uh, Gita Rudawan, former minister mm-hmm. of trade and the founder of the Ankara Foundation, onto Arutify's advisory board. And you also, um, just a few weeks ago, got fully approved for your peer-to-peer lending license from, uh, yes. from Ojeka, the financial regulator. I want to ask, uh, what, what, how do you feel about your relationship with the regulators in Indonesia? What are the challenges uh, that you see? And you know, what, what is the significance of these milestones and what does it mean for your customers? Yeah, thanks, Amrita. Definitely a huge milestone and you know, really, really uh, grateful that we are officially licensed. You know, I think we've been working very closely with Ojika, with the regulatory uh, uh, body in Indonesia since we started in 2018, you know, submitted the application. So we've been uh, registered and they know of our existence and it's been a long time coming. Like we joke, uh, uh, um, obviously throughout the two years, different families and team members have had children. So we're like, finally our <laughs> Ojeka baby is, is born, officially born now. And so we're very, very thankful about that. I think in terms of relationship, you know, we're thankful that the Ojeka has been a champion of fintech. Uh, we can see that they want and and you know the fintech industry is here to stay and to grow. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know we understand the need to be able to ensure, right? Like I mentioned before, there's so there's a variety of, of quality of lending institutions out there. So definitely support, right? The effort to ensure that. Uh, people who are serving, who are offering their products are credible, are responsible, right? And, and you know, are, are yeah, are just um, legitimate institutions, you know, um, because we know that this is also a very important product, right? People's life, livelihood are, are at stake in that sense. So yeah, great relationship, working well together. Um, it's always, int- I mean, as a policy, student as a as a joint degree student right you always know that there needs to be this healthy tension between regulator uh, between government and and the business and i think that tension exists and i think that's um you know we we do have the ears of what we really appreciate is we do have the ears of the regulators um and we do see that they're open for feedback you know open for insights on how can we grow this really new sector in uh especially in indonesia and on Pagita, yeah, no, it's it's 
Augie does great. I think he's such an advocate for us. Uh, really grateful to have him on board. I think it just shows us, you know, that it's not just us harping that there's a need for this, but figures like him, right, who's been in business and politics, you know, and very much has a huge heart for education, sees that there is this, this gap that, you know, Arudapai can play a part in, you know, bridging that financial gap so that students can actually have access to the education they want, you know, so he's been great. I think, um, again, uh, yeah, whenever I, I talk to him, I feel like, you know, an hour session just leaves you thinking and mulling it 10 hours later still. So I'm very grateful for him to be on board. That's great, Kenny. And I think y'all are so fortunate to have to have someone like that uh, on the regulatory side who really like buys into your vision for education in, in Southeast Asia and, and the impact that Arutify can have. I think that's really incredible. Um, and obviously, you know, y'all are working on student loans. That's like one part of the ecosystem. But from your perspective, what else needs to happen in the ecosystem to get everyday folks uh, in Indonesia, Philippines, anywhere else in Southeast Asia, access to quality, affordable education? What else needs to happen? Yeah, uh, gosh, um, how long do we have? <laughs> um, we got time. I think, <laughs> I think in, in short, I th okay, the biggest thing that needs to happen is is the quality part, right? I think for, for me, that's really a clincher. So how can we play a supporting role to existing education institutions, right? Within the respective countries and more, um, whether they're degree conferring or non-degree conferring, right? Uh, to ensure that whatever we're teaching is actually relevant to the job market. Mm -hmm. I think that's where I also see a huge gap, right? That the education sector tends to be outdated is what people say. Mm -hmm. Right. There's even arguments in, in the States, for instance, you know, and elsewhere where is a bachelor's degree even useful anymore because people spend, you know, years and spend a lot of money for for this and then for what, you know, the reality, I think, is that we're not going to shift that from that model anytime soon, you know, perhaps eventually. But in the meantime, it's still the measurement tool that we have. Right. Uh, and it is a platform that already exists for you to be to be skilled, right, for the for the workplace. So uh, I think the lower hanging fruit right now is to figure out, okay, now when, you know, how can we equip the existing institutions, universities, right, the schools to, to offer programs that are forward thinking, you know, whether it's actually incorporating technology one way or the other, and it doesn't have to just be, you know, everything has to be online. I think it can be a hybrid model, but how can you use uh, the improvements that we have, the resources that we have, to gather in more information, right? Especially for developing countries like us, right? Like Indonesia, Philippines, uh, Southeast Asia, is that how can we tap into the research and learning that's already been done in other markets and bring that in and adapt it for us? You know, you don't have to do copy and paste, right? But learn from them and then and then implement it and, and then figure out how can that work in our market? So how can we do more cross collaboration? How can we learn and bring in, you know, um, uh, practitioners as well? So it's not just necessarily academics teaching and also, yeah, creating an environment where people are, students are learning dynamically, you know, mm -hmm. like they have agency, right? To kind of figure out, actually, these are the topics that I wanna learn. How can you facilitate me to learn and equip myself or, you know, this career path that I want to try and explore. So I think, 
yeah, I think being able to really have a closer tie of what does the job market need? What is the future of work need, right? That's sort of the trend. And how can you equip the students right now for that, right? Instead of plunging them with outdated skills and then they're sort of like having to figure it out themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I guess this is the typical joint degree question that I have to ask you, but whose responsibility is that? You know, that's a <laughs> order to figure out what are the, the needs of the, of the market and then match students to those and, and actually have the right curriculum in schools to, to enable that. Is that, is that up to the government? Is that up to uh, private institutions? Is it up to fintechs like, like Arutify to solve that problem? What, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, great question. I think a short answer for me is that, you know, I hope it's not a non-answer, but it, it, it's not up to just one person or one sector, right? I mean, again, I might be biased, but I strongly believe in this, right? As, as someone who, the reason why I find it interesting to do a joint degree program, because when I look at social issues, there's no way that just the government or just the you know, civil societies, NGOs, or just the private sector can solve it, right? It's, it, when you're looking at society, they interact with all of them, right? Like the government is very, very key to make sure it's scaled to mass, right? That it's, it's uh, the equality part, the access, right? They play a huge role in that, but they're also a massive institution that fundamentally just can't pivot and, and test and experiment as, as quickly as you know the private sector or the startups, right? Um, so that's where the private sector could come in. You know, there's you know different learnings, different speed, right, different resources that can tap into. And then the you know civil societies also have a huge role to play, right? They often hold the keys to the relationships, right, to the trust, to the community. So how can we all work together? So going back to the topic of, of sort of education and innovation, I think that's why for us, it's super important that we have those partnerships, you know, and that's key for us because then we, we there's already cross-sectoral, right? We're basically a private sector startup for profit, but we our heart is in education and we wanna work with education institutions, you know, um, and certainly with the government to figure out you know, how can we, for us, for instance, we work with different campuses. So there's a lot of learnings there. And how can we basically take that learning and share with our partners, you know, actually, for instance, right, and work with boot camps, we can share with the formal schools, you know, here's, here's all the trends right now, everyone, you know, we can show you the data, everyone wants to learn, you know, um, uh, digital marketing, for instance, mm -hmm. do you guys have any curriculum in digital marketing? How is it, you know, and happy to play those bridges as well, right? So for us, it needs to be cross-sectoral, it needs to be collaborative effort. So in the future, we would love, you know, I think this is what we're tapping into as well, work with industries, right? Because part, like, companies has a lot, a lot of skilling, training needs as well. And, uh, you know, education in that Part, right is also really important so um yeah it's exciting for us to be able to sit across all those different sectors and to play you know our our role in it um but i think there's a lot of work to be done and i think this is this is a time right where it's also being highlighted um so yeah we'll see we'll see where all these le leads to yeah but, the opportunity is there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very well said, Ketty, as a true tri-sector athlete. Uh, I have to say that. 
<laughs> okay, last question uh, before we before we let you go. And because this is a fintech podcast, I, I want to ask about how student loans and Arutify fits into the broader wave of fintech that we're seeing across Southeast Asia, especially in Indonesia, where 65, 70% of the population is unbanked. How does, how does Arutify fit in and how do you see the fintech market growing and in service of, of those, you know, very large unbanked population? So, so a lot, there's a lot of fintech, especially in Indonesia, right? There's a lot of fintech popping up um, and uh, a lot of them actually caters more towards the SMEs, right? Because obviously the need is there um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a growing sector. For us, the reason why we, you know, from the beginning till now into the future, focus specifically on students is because of the problem, the big problem that we want to, to kind of tackle, but also essentially we're tackling the whole um, unbankable and access to banking from a different angle, right? We basically want to, the by focusing on the segment, we get them early for them to understand, you know, the financial institutions, because we realize, again, a lot of people in Indonesia um, and the Philippines still don't understand even the concept of savings and, you know, having a bank account, like simple stuff that we take for granted, right? Um, credit and how can it be used for good, right? And not necessarily just uh, debt sometimes has like a negative ring to it. But so we we basically also tackle that right from early on. And our idea is we really want to be their financing partner because we are here for you, right? So beyond education, as you kind of walk with us, you know, we would love, uh, right? As you continue to upskill yourself, continue to train um, under these, um, that's sort of what we're tackling at. We open up this whole new world, um, bring awareness, you know, create financial inclusion to a segment that not has not been served, right? Um, and, and get them early so that they have this understanding, this familiarity, this comfort, um, as well as obviously open up access to education. So um, yeah, again, uh, lots, of, lots of work to be done, but... Um, yeah, good, good growth and good progress so far. So yeah, we'll no, it, it's so inspiring, Ketty, what you and the Arutify team are doing. And I cannot wait to see, uh, you know, how you guys keep growing. Uh, that is all the time we have for today. But Ketty, thank you. Thank you so much for being our guest. This has been such a fun conversation. Um, thank you to the audience for joining us. And please write to us with any of your comments. Thanks, Ketty. Thanks, Marita. And now a word from our sponsors. My name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with the green room it's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the green room brings to you as a, a knowledge sharing base you can find out more about apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels keynotes 
uh, master classes that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there thanks for tuning in to this episode of the green room with amrita veer listen to us on spotify apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates you can also visit amritavir.com to get more information, join our mailing list, or just reach out to us. You can also write to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com and follow our Instagram handle, greenroomfintech. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.